Hello again and welcome to another episode of Voices from SA. My name is Nicholas Claude. Thanks for joining me wherever you are. My guest this week is the Sao Paulo-based uh, academic and political thinker, Professor Giorgio Schutter. He was in Johannesburg a few weeks ago as the guest of the Mapungubwe Institute for Strategic Reflection and indeed gave the Mistra annual lecture on the 4th of September. The lecture essentially looked at the rise of the Bolsonaro right-wing government in Brazil in the face of the failures of the left to confront various domestic and foreign crises. Um, we touched, I suppose, a bit on that, but obviously you having not listened to it, I didn't want to get into too much depth. Professor Schütte is currently Associate Professor of International Relations and Economics at the Federal University of Sao Paulo. He's also a member of the postgraduate courses in world political economy and international. He's also a member of the postgraduate courses in world political economy and international relations at the same university. He's worked as an advisor to the Lula government and also held uh, positions as a regional advisor to the World Bank, among other things. I will attach his uh, CV to the audio boom site for you to peruse. So the discussion this week, the podcast episode this week, is a chance, I think, well, I saw it as a chance for for myself and hopefully for you to just get a different perspective on things, a Brazilian perspective on certain global trends, and to try and place South Africa where possible and where relevant into these trends, South Africa obviously being a member of the BRICS in particular. I was interested to get Professor Schütter's view on the state of the global left, uh, some of the challenges that face young democracies like South Africa, like Brazil for that matter. Um, and we also then chatted about the changing nature of work, South Africa and the BRICS, um, and uh, the coming battle for the global economy that is now manifesting itself in the China-USA trade wars. Before we begin, I would also like to just thank Sipokazi from Mistra for facilitating my chat with Professor Schutter. Please enjoy. I would like to thank you, Professor, for taking the time this afternoon to see me. It's my pleasure. Uh, welcome to Johannesburg. What, what, is, what is your uh, connection to South Africa? Because I understand you have been here over a couple of years. Yes. How did that initially start, your contact well, with... Well, I was working for the trade union movement in Brazil, uh, the National Center, and there was a lot of interest in exchange uh, with organizations which were going through similar kinds of experiences uh, because, let's say, the West, the, the European unions, of course, were, had a completely different reality. And so there was a lot of interest to exchange with South Africa, South Korea, the unions uh, who were faced uh, with, you know, operating in countries similar level of development, and especially also with experience uh, here, the fight against apartheid in Brazil, the fight against the dictatorship, right. uh, the same way that Cosato became a very important actor and still is in, in South Africa has to do with its stand against apartheid and the same in the case in Brazil uh, where the unions were in the forefront 
uh, for democratization and the end of military dictatorships mm. at the end of the 70s, beginning yeah. of the 80s. Mm. So we were, the, both Cosato and Kut were set up in the beginning of the 80s, so they have a very similar story. So mm. I was involved in this, in this exchange process, receiving people uh, coming to, uh, leaders of Cosato coming to uh, uh, Brazil, we would organize exchange program. I went uh, to to South Africa, and then later on, when I started to work for the uh, government, uh, then I had exchange in, at this level, and 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 then uh, later on, as now as a professor, I was invited as in this mm. uh, into this forum. Yes, uh, at Mistra. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, it was a fascinating discussion. I don't want to uh, go into too much detail on on the on the. The, the kind of discussion that took place last night at the, the lecture that I attended, you essentially took the audience through the sort of recent political turmoil, I suppose we can call it the collapse of the Lula project, uh, the Lula-Dilma project uh, in, um, in Brazil. Um, I think one of the things, you know, people obviously do try and draw parallels. I'm not sure how much we can draw parallels between different countries, but certainly you touch on, I was thinking about that, the formation of the PT, which was the, the sort of workers' party, was more recent than I, than I realized, and I suppose it could be compared to an ANC in a sort of post-liberation yeah. situation, um, and also a party with very high ideals and very um, ambitious goals in terms of eradicating poverty or at least transforming the economy to an extent that it would become perhaps more redistributive, if that's the right word to use. Um, perhaps you could just take us through some of the challenges that face, if we can draw that sort of parallel, the challenges that face a, a new government um, that wants to make such radical changes. You pointed to, for example, the financial sector as being one hindrance. Um, the other is perhaps just the capacity of the infrastructure of state itself to, right. to, to drive those changes. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me first say that there's a lot of things in common, but there are also uh, differences, important mm. differences between Brazil and South Africa. So, uh, while well, here the ANC, uh, of course, had far the majority uh, in the post-apartheid political reality, in the post-dictatorship reality of Brazil, the democratization movement split from the beginning in a center movement, uh, which would then embrace uh, liberal ideas, moderate neoliberalism, and on the other hand, the Workers' Party, which would be in the, uh, in the 90s, in the first period after the democratization in the opposition. Yeah. Right. So we had, in 1880, a very progressive uh, constitution, yeah, and the constitution is in fact being attacked now by the right who is amending it all the time to take out the rights mm. but the, the challenge of the left was also always to put the constitution into practice yeah. um, now the center uh, movement which we call the center right but they themselves 
would say that they are progressive liberals. Mm, the progressive liberals, uh, they embraced uh, part of the neoliberal agenda in the 90s and they were not able uh, to create jobs. They opened up the economy. They ended any form of capital control. So Brazil became incredibly vulnerable uh, to the in and outflows. And when the Asian crisis came in the end of the 90s, uh, the economy went down. They also had attacked uh, like th these planning agencies of the military dictatorship. And with this, they threw the baby together with the dirty water. Mm. Yeah, threw out the baby together with the dirty water. Threw out and the baby with the bathwater, yeah. Yeah, with the bathwater. So without planning, what happened in 2001, mm. in the energy sector, electricity, there was a blackout. And this combination of unemployment, blackout, financial turmoil made that the center, center-right, or as they call it, the progressive liberals, would uh, lose the support of the population and Lula would finally win. Right? Uh, so in 2002, it was as a vote to say, no, we want to keep, we want to move forward with democratization, but let's see if the left can do it better Never. than the center-right. So... It was a huge challenge uh, and a lot of hope, and there was a whole new period, and people were dancing on the street. It was a mm. new, new idea. A new dawn. A new dawn. We've got one of those at the moment here, apparently. Yeah, but then, of course, the, the, it's very complicated. Lula was very able to, and he understood the complexity, both national as international. So there was a lot of negotiations, a lot of priorities, but it was all a very clear idea to create this inclusive society, uh, to give people rights, uh, to try to overcome informality, uh, to, to not attack directly privileges, because that would create a lot of opposition, then government would be impossible, but to try to compromise and to say that at least that the growth that would come, uh, that would go directly to the more poorest classes and open up universities hmm. uh, uh, for uh, children of, of poor families. So this was all, all, all more or less um, going in the right direction. Now, yes, there are, the, 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 what I tried to explain is that there were several changes going on, uh, both at, in politics internationally, which has to do with more aggressiveness of the United States to keep its hegemony. It has to do with China rising eh, and with enormous capacity to provoke deindustrialization all over the world. Eh. Uh, it has also to do with a financial sector eh, which has become enormously powerful, eh, which does not respect any national policies mm. it has always this opt out uh, it, it goes in it goes out uh, uh, and it can be can be extremely destabilizing uh, as we saw by the 2008 crisis and we have these changes in 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 the way that production is organized uh, which is now for a couple of years already we have a lot of you know, this, all this outsourcing, the splitting up, this internationalization. So the traditional basis, the traditional way Gig of... Gig economy. Yeah, then 
then when we are now moving towards this uberization, mm. work drunk, uh, being people being connected through platforms, uh, uh, so the distribution and production are are being interweaved completely, and these all these all these changes makes that the old solution of the left are not working anymore, uh, and so you have an opposition, international and nationally, you have forces in society who want to defend their privileges, and we have forces internationally, specifically the United States, who wants to defend its hegemony. And you have uh, concretely the solutions that you, the policies that you had developed, uh, which gave results in the the 2000s years, they're not working anymore. Mm. And at the same time, and then I will uh, end this first. <laughs> end. We we see that to uh, with a development strategy needs a state to coordinate. It doesn't need a state to do everything. Of course, you're open. Uh, the, the, it's a capitalist society. Uh, foreign direct investment is is of course is more than welcome, but you have to coordinate it. Uh, you have to you have to have a development strategy. Uh, mm. uh, for example foreign direct investment, multinational companies, they will never, never invest in research and development capacity in your country. Uh, you have to do that yourself, and you have to force, like China did, these companies uh, to assist you in this effort. Yeah. So by just opening up uh, to foreign capital, you won't get the results that you, that you, that you look for. Now, to, to, to have this coordinating role as a state... You have to have the capacity, human capacity, you have to have the organization. And in reality, what maybe Lula underestimated is that, you know, he wanted to run the marathon. However, you have to think about the athletes who during 20 years had done nothing of exercises. This mm. was this 20 years of 10 years of debt crisis which paralyzed Brazil, and then 10 years of neoliberal policies where the state wouldn't have a role. So 20 years you, didn't, you haven't done any physical exercise and suddenly you're going to run the marathon. It doesn't work. Yeah. So this created a lot of frustrations. Yeah. And, and these difficulties of all sides, the opposition, the, the changing economic realities, the, um, the incapacity uh, to implement your policies, uh, because there's no state capacity. This altogether created a, a, a situation where the left had, had difficulties to, to keep in the, to, in the driver's seat uh, mm. and, and resulted in the search of new forces that, curiously, that were not the uh, democratic uh, liberal forces, but completely a new reality of neoconservative forces who would then surprisingly win the elections and are now running the, the game in Brazil and in many other countries. Yeah, that's the kind of trend I'm kind of struggling to to explain to myself because you would have thought after 2008 and the collapse of the global economy essentially that that would have been a perfect opportunity for the left to step into the breach and and become the well the voice of of a new way of doing things 
And yet, it seems to have gone the other way. And as you say, it's not only Brazil, it's not only um, Eastern European countries in Asia, for example, and, and, and well, the United States, I'm not even, no one's really sure what's going on, on there. Um, why, why, did the, why did the left not, is it, is it a lack of flexibility? Is it that difficulty of, of sort of balancing principle and, and, and flexibility and, and sort of, I don't know, principle and reality? Or how, how do you well, explain it? I think, well, there, there are many, many things that we can discuss here. But first, I would say that, yes, of course, 2008 crisis was a huge uh, challenge, a huge challenge for the United States specifically, for US-led capitalism in the world. Yeah. There was suddenly there was was a, was a real uh, threat that if China would go out of the dollar, imagine into the end of two thousand eight. Yeah, so there was real panic for a couple of weeks in the United States, and they became suddenly for the first time since nineteen forty five, they became humble. They invited other countries to ask for opinions. That's the origin of the G twenty. Yeah, they wanted to. Chinese to think together because we're afraid that China would go another way. And so Brazil and all the other countries also came in, the G20, which had an extremely important role. Yeah. Now, uh, in, in this, this situation, in this context, the BRICS was created mm. uh, as a front of countries who, who, who would think between themselves yeah, about how would the world be yeah, after 2008. Uh, it's not a coincidence uh, that, that it's in this period that, uh, that the BRICS started to, to have its, its role. Well, but exactly because of this, exactly because the United States felt that there was a real challenge, now this was the real challenge, not like the end of the 70s when Japan and, and Germany, after the defeat of Vietnam, then, you know, people would speak at... Uh, the decline of the American Empire, but there was not real. Uh, there was not a real alternative. Uh, Japan and Germany would not challenge the United States, and and the Soviet Union was not a real ch uh, economic challenge anymore. No. Now it's different. It's completely different because you have another. Uh, uh, you have China, which has military capacity, which has the capacity to control its currency, and which might become. A challenger, yeah? and so this makes the United States more aggressive. And one way to keep control is, of course, to um, to to pressure its allies yeah? to rediscipline, to discipline its capital, its own capital. You have to say to its multinationals, oh, "Don't sell off technologies to countries that are not our friends." Mm. Yeah? Then uh, to discipline also countries which were not in opposition to the United States, but like Brazil, who would like South Africa, who would you know want a more multipolar world. And mm. the United States started to understand that this story of a multipolar world would mean at the end the end of their hegemony. And so the reaction was much more uh, deep, profound and aggressive than we thought in 2008-2009. Yeah. So the Fed, you know, 
the, the army that they use was this huge quantitative easing, trillions of dollars. Printing. Yeah. And the Fed by now has much more power over other central banks and over private banks all over the world than they had before 2008. Okay. Yeah. And so, and the dollar eh, is strong, very strong. Eh? And so, the, the, this international situation, so both politically and economically, eh, it worked out the other way. Eh? Because we, there was not real yet a coordinated alternative. And the United States is very, very determined eh, to keep uh, US-led capitalism. Yeah. And other kinds of capitalism must be subordinate to this. It must be, and this is now this so-called trade war with, with, with China. China. Mm. Yes. But Brazil, of course, uh, uh, in several, the BRICS, the negotiations with Iran, and especially you know, changes in oil laws, which put the oil and gas, huge oil and gas fields, uh, more on the control of the state the company than the American companies. And this all together made also Brazil a country that needed to de redisciplined. Mm -hmm. yeah. So this is one, one important uh, issue. You sh never should underestimate uh, this world as a boss. So if you want to change it, you have to at least to understand uh, and to analyze how will this boss react. Sure doesn't mean that you have to do what he wants. But you but just need to be careful. You need to be careful to have your allies. For example, in 2010, when Lula made, to the surprise of everybody, he made a deal with Iran directly, with Ahmadinejad, on the nuclear issue, which the idea was, because Obama had at some point asked him, but the idea was he would fail. That was the script. Mm -hmm. While Lula failing... The United States could say to Russia and China, but, you see, yeah. they don't want. Even with Lula, they don't want. So, more sanctions. That was the game. To the surprise of everybody, Lula made the deal. And then, especially Hillary Clinton, um, but also Israel, of course, and, and the deep state the establishment of foreign affairs, and I'd say they became very angry with, with Lula. He had gone one step too far. Now, the issue I want to raise is that this was 2010. The BRICS were already working. What did Russia and China do? They looked the other way. They did not support the agreement Lula had signed. So you see, it was still too weak. And it was too easy for the United States to, to, and that's to not fight long back. Ago. That's not long ago either, is it? No, no, no. But th this is, one, this is in, in, uh, one of the important uh, uh, things. And mm. so... Uh, both the economy eh, and, and this, this quantitative easing, these trillions of dollars of the Fed, uh, they are running around in the world to look for the best investment opportunities. Eh? And if you don't have capital controls, if you don't manage uh, your capital account, as the FMI IMF would put it, eh, you will be absolutely uh, uh, hostage eh, of this daily or better, every second they are looking for where I'm, I'm have, do I have more profit. They come in, they go out. And so when in 2010, 2011, they came in massively looking for profits in Brazil, no capital controls, you would have enormous uh, valuation of your currency. 
which makes imports of manufacturing very easy and export impossible. And nobody's going to invest anymore in, in manufacturing because, well, at any moment, it, uh, your currency, uh, there's no defense of your currency. So the, the, the power of the finances, one, what I try to explain, don't underestimate uh, the interests of US-led capitalism. That's one. Uh, it's a reality that you have to deal with. You have to be prepared. Second, the financial sector is extremely powerful and extremely disruptive. There, there's no way, there's no way you can get out of underdevelopment without understanding that you have to defend yourself from the logic of the finance capital. And here, China is a clear example. In many other cases, it's either not an example because uh, mm. you would not agree, or it's not an example because it's impossible to reproduce it. But here, it's important to stress, China has all its banks are basically state, 97% is national, the financial sector, and they have capital controls. Without this, they would never have been possible, never have been possible to develop their economy and to have these growth figures, right? So they were always open to foreign direct investment. But don't think that, oh, that's why they grow. We're just open to foreign direct investment. That's wrong. Brazil has huge inflows of foreign direct investments. Huge. It's, it's, of the last 10 years, it was about, uh, uh, on average, among the five countries that most received foreign direct investment. They did not increase the... Uh, uh, fixed uh, capital investment rate, uh, the general investment rate. It did not create a technological basis in Brazil. Mm. It did not increase productivity. And in Mexico, we can see the same. Uh, a lot of investments uh, in no Maquila, but these are kinds of investments which are in the interest of this company. Right. They're operating worldwide. worldwide and uh, the, the, if you don't have your own strategy, they, they will not set it up for you. Eh? So, but to set up a, a, a strategy and to make good deals with this, these multinational companies, because you need them, eh? there's no right. way that you, you can't go back to, uh, to the idea that you uh, can close off your economy. You have to have a, a relatively open economy. But uh, the financial sector... Uh, that's where the credit for your companies come from. That's the credit, and for you, for your own government, uh, you cannot be a hostage of the financial sector. So the ideology that has been put in our minds uh, that you have to have an open economy, uh, uh, is, it cannot be put into practice uh, in all fields, uh, and especially the power of the financial sector is very disruptive for. Uh, Developing countries, also, of course, for developed countries, but they have much more capacity to defend themselves. Yeah, so I would say that the outcome of 2008-2009 crisis, yeah, at the end, worked out very bad yeah, for developing countries. Mm. Um, I suppose the one significant institution that does align South Africa and Brazil um, and perhaps I think puts South Africa on a pedestal on the on the global stage that it perhaps doesn't uh, deserve is is the BRICS. Um, how did that come about that South Africa became 
part of BRICS? Well, from Bacardi became the S in the BRIC. Well, this is I, I um, this is in great part uh, um, if interest was in great part interest from Brazil. Brazil's worked a lot to accomplish this. At the beginning, beginning, China didn't like it. Afterwards, it was uh, they liked it. Uh, and why was it so important for Brazil? Because Brazil had, uh, before the BRICS, this alliance with India and South Africa, IPSA. Okay. India, Brazil, South Africa. And that was really our policy. Because we understand South Africa. We understand India maybe a little bit better. But China and Russia are completely different stories. Yeah. So sitting at the table with... China, when you Russia. Say you understand South Africa and India. What do you, what do you, actually, no, well, what do you mean by that? India maybe is also more the, the development pro- problems, just the, the social the, problems, the right. way you organize, the, the, the difficulties to organize your democracy, the, your your history. You know, uh, especially of course with South Africa, but mm. but but India would then also you know be considered you know a big uh, with parliamentary democracy, etc. Now, so. Brazil sitting at the table with Russia, China and India was very strange because Brazil felt like being invited to a party where people, where the other people knew each other for centuries. Mm. You were there as a newcomer. You didn't know anybody. Bit of a spare wheel, as we say. Yeah. And, and uh, these three countries, they have borders, they fought wars. They have nuclear missiles. They they they, mm. they make peace. They study each other. They have huge institutions uh, of each on these other Not studies. Their language and everything. Centuries of history, and Brazil was and so to and Brazil's op- on the other side of the world. Yeah, as well. So to open this up, and it was in the in in it was Brazil wanted to mix it with IPSA, and the missing mm. link was South Africa. Mm. And so the clever game was in 2010, when the BRICS meeting was in Brasilia. And what we would do, we organized the meeting of IPSA exactly in the same period. Hmm. Yeah. So, because the president of India would already be there, so the president of Ozuma from South Africa would be there. And then, of course... Who would reject him to sit at the table Just also with China and Russia? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so this was... Uh, hmm. uh, and then, of course, there were other talks, and this was very... Uh, and it became... Uh, as the BRICS were moving more and more, China understood why it was important, the BRICS, because in the beginning it was Russia and Brazil were pushing forward for the BRICS for different reasons. And, and China then understood that this could be a very interesting tool for its foreign policy to present its foreign policy diluted among other countries. Because it's BRIC started as four and then became five, but now, of course, it's four plus one, mm. or one plus four. China is now dominating, of course, everything. Mm. Mm. But um, so this was very important for, for Brazil. It was accepted and, uh, well, the, the beginning, the first years were much about organizing between each other at the positions in the G20 eh, and to press for more democratization of the international institution, especially the Bretton Woods, eh, IMF mm-hmm. World Bank. 
Um, but then after 2014, uh, that was uh, Dilma was not very interested in foreign policy, but she had one issue that she dedicated a lot. That was the BRICS. So she really wanted the BRICS to 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 get muscles, and to get muscles, she had to become just more than uh, than, than coordination. Yeah, well. It was more than for, uh, talking. It was coordination of uh, the positions were really coordinated in okay. the G20, um, and in IMF and World Bank, and even some issues in the United Nations. But uh, to get muscles, uh, you had to have some institutionality and, and, and some way to really make a dispute with, with not dispute, but to show the World Just Bank, listen, there are alternatives. So the, the creation of the world of, of the new development bank, uh, the bank of the BRICS, was crucial. Uh, and, and this worked uh, in 2014. And that was a real, uh, um, that had a very strong commitment of, of Dilma and, and the Chinese, of course, they, 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 they considered this also as um, very positive and everybody, in fact. And so uh, this was the second phase of the BRICS, I would say. Mm. Yeah. And this would expand itself. So we, now we have in November in in Brazil again a BRICS summit. This is coming up now. Yeah, in November. And the original idea was to have again an upgrade, you know, like the new development bank right. and the, something else now to build on that. Yeah, and that would be through technology cooperation. Mm. Exactly, understanding that Western-based multinational companies and and Western countries in general, they will not transfer technology. And if you're going to invest in it, they will kick your ladder, as they are trying to do with China. Yeah. And so by working together, mm. yeah, we could have force. We had Build this experience up, uh, with Brazil yeah. and India on the HIV, yeah, where we challenged immediately, uh, strongly, the pharmaceutical industry. We would not... Uh, in debt our countries to buy extremely expensive uh, medicines against HIV, but we would also not let EIV patients uh, down. So the solution was to set up our own uh, uh, generics uh, pharmaceutical. pharmaceutical industries and using this, the formulas uh, and breaking the uh, patents. Patent, yeah. uh, uh, and that's what we did. Yeah. And so this maybe we could do similar things on many other uh, areas of technology. Yeah. Now, curiously, uh, the present right-wing government, extreme right government, didn't change the theme. Uh, every, every summit of the BRICS has a theme, and, and Brazil had in its mind uh, that this would be the theme. Now, the, they didn't change because there, there was simply no interest. There's no interest in the BRICS. So the the. Um, mm. Dossier was handled by by third level diplomats, which were the same that were handling the issue before. <laughs> just the minister and, and the, the top, the, the top they're, they're just not not giving attention to the bricks. However, what will happen is that it will be just a very superficial talk, uh, and it will not have the power that it could have had, mm. because it's the main issue uh, uh, behind the trade, so called trade war. Yeah, it's not about trade, the trade war. It's about who controls the technology. technology. 
uh, Huawei and, and 5G, and these are the issues. Now imagine that, you know, in this moment, uh, the BRICS would really like Come create... Together. And, yeah, and create a really separate something. technology hub almost. Yeah, and 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 that would of course uh, created really uh, could have created a new uh, dynamics. Mm. Uh, but what happens now is that as as uh, our president in Brazil now Bolsonaro is of course very much allied to the uh, United States and specifically with Trump in a way that Brazil never had before. We were of course always ally of the United States, but never in this way, unconditional. And so this will be watered down. Mm. And in fact, what we saw at the G20 meeting in Japan, what we saw was that Russia, India and China revitalized the idea of the RIC, Russia, mm. India, China. Yeah. Because if you take Brazil out, well, you're not going it's to not invite a... South Africa. Mm. Yeah. So no, if exactly. it's about taking Brazil out of the of the really the strategic discussions, uh, uh, then of course it means also uh, the, not only the lowering down of the BRICS, the downgrade also, of yeah. South Africa. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, because that was I mean I've written here um, BRICS ideological incoherence. That that seems to be there doesn't seem to be a sort of common thread now between. The, 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 the politics of the disparate nations. No, what it is now, it, what it is now, it's an instrument of Chinese foreign policy, hmm. which can be of use of the other countries. Yeah? And uh, as China is very important for Brazil, and I imagine also for you, it's very important for Russia. It's indispensable for India, whether they like it or not. Hmm. Brazil is the first trade partner. Becoming the, one of the main investors, um, it's the main uh, export destination uh, for f our, our agriculture. Uh. So uh, mm. we need uh, China, notwithstanding the anti-China rhetoric of, of the, our president. He understands that he has to back off a little bit on this Trump-style anti-China. Because we don't have the muscles, we don't have, and we are not going to sell soya to the United States. We can only sell it to, to, to China. China. Mm. And so uh, the government will stay in the BRICS. We will stay in the BRICS. The BRICS will be much more on these issues of financial. Uh, the, the bank of the BRICS will continue because this is of interest of all. Uh, not uh, the cat can have any color, like Deng Xiaoping would say, but on the issues of more strategic thinking, uh, on how to deal with a way to to diminish uh, this uh, the influence of uh, U.S.-led capitalism. Uh, although it was never put in this way, but it, it was you know in China style. It was the way that that, that where the brakes were going. You mm -hmm. Don't mm -hmm. underestimate the importance of the brakes in this issue. Now this is all gone now. This is clear, but it will survive because there are strong economic financial interests in having good relations with China, mm -hmm. and China has interest in keeping the brakes. Uh, mm -hmm. That's how uh, we mm -hmm. can see it. Mm -hmm. I want to go back to the the state of the left, if I may, and uh, particularly. Um, well, the Amazon forest is being set alight. 
Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering now, is that maybe a step too far um, for Bolsonaro? And particularly, can the environmental, um, the, the fight or the struggle or the activism against climate change and the, 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 the sort of damage that we can say capital or industry has placed on, on, on our planet, can that be a new frontier of struggle for the left, um, not only in Brazil but around the world? Right. Well, first of all, we have to understand that um, the government in, of Brazil is the president uh, with his clan, uh, its sons and his friends, and uh, which we can call neoconservative. Uh, this neoconservatism looks like Trump, looks like Salvini, but it isn't, because it has no national economic policy. Hmm. Uh, it has no economic policy at all by itself. Yeah? So their nationalism is completely empty. Yeah? It's just being against the left, because the left would be like something like aliens. Yeah? So the president would say, if you don't like me, get out of the country. Yeah? Go out of the country. So to what what happened is that the trick was they ma they married, they were strange marriage, a marriage of convenience, with ultra liberals. These ultra liberals they have nothing to do with these neoconservative ideas, yeah. but they saw an opportunity to defeat the left, to destroy the left, and to put forward their liberal uh, agenda without no compromise. I'm speaking about privatization, selling off, concessions, and everything. Uh, attacking workers' rights, uh, uh, pension rights, and all this is being done at incredible speed. Now, this liberal agenda would not have any electoral viability. So that's why they had to marry with the neoconservatives. And the neoconservatives knew that they needed the approval of capital. And that's why they appointed Bolsonaro, appointed in the early stage of his campaign. He said, if I win, my minister of economy will be Paulo Guedes, who is someone of the financial sector, uh, uh, clearly ultra-liberal. And so, so now we have this uh, structural incoherence, but which works. Why is it incoherent? Well... The neoconservatives, they say, we have to remove the embassy, our embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem. Then agricultural will say, oh my God, I'm selling billions to Arab countries. No. Then they call Bolsonaro and said, please understand. And Bolsonaro will get one step back. So the embassy is still in Tel Aviv. But they opened an office with no diplomats in, in Jerusalem with the Brazilian flag. <laughs> The neoconservatives, they go to Taiwan. They are with Trump. We have to defeat China. Our Judeo-Christian Western culture is under attack. We have to fight Islam. We have to fight China. We have to fight communism. Then agriculture finance is very upset because we need China for the finance. We need China for the export of agriculture. And Bolsonaro does one step back. Yeah? And so what we see is you have crazy policies, but every time that these policies are in contradiction with the interests of capital, then rationality survives and the neoconservatives do one step back. Now, on issues 
where this capital doesn't have any problem, like destroying universities, like putting, you know, uh, anti anti gay or, or or all these issues, uh, getting away with all the um, uh, positive policies for blacks or getting away with culture, financing of cinema, etc. This goes on. This neoconservative agenda is being implemented and is changing Brazil in a very negative way. But, uh, so there is this everyday incoherence. Now, on the case of deforestation, the Amazon, that's uh, an issue where maybe maybe the most uh, uh, impressive uh, policy success of the Lula government, because when he started, there was 20,000 square kilo- kilometer of uh, deforestation per year. That means in 2004, 2005, the half of the Netherlands would be destroyed right. per year. Jesus. So with very strong policies and very complex and diversified policies, this was put down every year. And in 2012, it was around uh, 2,800 square wow. kilometers. Yeah. Still a lot. Eh? Yeah, but what but happened, a significant drop. Yeah. Now, to explain this, this has to do, in part, there are a lot of issues like no credit to companies who are in any way linked to deforestation, uh, uh, increase in the controls, but especially uh, the satellite supervision. We have a National Institute for Spatial Investigation, which is renominated, it's uh, highly specialized, and it has 20-hour for our supervision. So it's this like a big link- surveillance camera in the sky. Right, right. Uh, huh. And um, now, a month ago, Bolsonaro uh, didn't like uh, the fact that, it, because this institute is, is giving information out, and they didn't even have to do it, because on their page you can follow okay. yourself. Uh, the people are listening, they can go to these pages, they have all the information on what's going on on, uh, online almost in the Amazon. So these the figures were showing that there was a huge increase in fires and, and deforestation. So these fires would be to open up land for cattle or, or, or soya production. Soya beans. Yeah. And so uh, this uh, Bolsonaro didn't like it. And what did he do? He fired the president of this institute. Now this president of the institute is not left-wing, He's 72 years old. He's a famous scientist. He's a member of the Brazilian Academy of Science. So that was a bad shot. So that had the backlash. So people really went on the street. They were angry. And then came a couple of weeks later. We saw Impi was right, of course, because Bolsonaro started to suggest that Impi was being manipulated by foreign NGOs. And then there came the backlash in in the beginning, he reacted very badly yeah, when the f- all the information on the, the fires really became, coming. the evidence was coming and all the world was talking about. He s- would insist that, that the fires were provoked, were, uh, that would be foreign NGOs that were putting on the fires. He told that to f- foreign journalists, so correspondents, so this was very bad. Then he would attack Merkel, he would attack Macron, and of course Macron went a little bit too far, this was not very useful also. But anyway... Uh, yeah, what, do you, what did you mean by that, Macron? What, what, well, about? in the beginning it was okay, but when Macron said that you have to give international status to the Amazon, that's of course nonsense. Brazil is, uh, Amazon is part of Brazil. 
Yeah? Mm-hmm. If Brazil wants international cooperation, like Lula did in this in this fight, successful fight against deforestation, he had a lot of international cooperation, but it has but nobody should or can uh, uh, put into question the. Uh, sovereignty, of sovereignty of the country. But, uh, uh, but we don't th- need an Iraq in the defense of the of the mm. Amazon. And to, uh, no, I, I just I thought that the Amazon was a protected so UNESCO by Brazil. No, 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 UNESCO Bra- site or something yeah, like no, that. No, no, no. But, but uh-huh. of course the Brazil. No, it can be, but but it's part of the Brazilian territory. Mm. So t- there's Brazilian laws defending that. The laws are there. Okay. Th- there is no change in any law. The parliament of, or the, the, did not change any law. Yeah. So the actions changed. The actions changed, right, in the rhetoric. Because if I say openly uh, that the problem is Obama, which is the fiscal, the, the guys who are fiscalizing, uh, well, the next day they shot that uh, one of these uh, fiscal agencies, agents. Uh, because people feel then that they have this moral support of the president to do this, this, this firing and to oppose the the state officials. So this was, of course, one step too far. And and basically what happened also that, again, the the leaders of the agro-business would now say openly, openly, uh, in the the newspapers, in television, they would say openly, this is bad for our business. Uh, We can't sell agro Agro, uh, agricultural products in the world wh- which people can link to deforestation. To the so Amazon. he backed off. Uh, uh, like 10 days ago, went on television and he said, the president said, yes, there is a problem, we are going to tackle go it. And, and there was a huge, yeah, and there was a huge uh, mobilization by militaries, etc. And then we see every day on television actions to, to get these guys who were not from NGOs, but who were linked with landowners, <laughs> but anyway. Um, so, yes, but we have to be careful. This is not, not necessarily, of course, uh, agricultural production must be done in this way. Uh, when Lula did these very strong policies, he clearly separated uh, savage uh, agro-business uh, with a regulated agro-business. And of course, then we can talk about how much the regulation must be, etc., the tax, the use of agrotoxical, etc., etc. But he clearly uh, made uh, this distance. And, what, and so uh, on this issue, on the fight against savage agriculture which include deforestation uh, and neglection of the Amazon uh, Bolsonaro in fact was and is on the defense and uh, the poll shows that 75 percent of the population is against this policy uh, so he lost also general approval rate because of these policies but that's the, the contradiction that will go during the whole government we will see these ups and downs uh, mm. because, but every time that you know Big business, in this case, we're talking about agro-business and finance because that are the two sectors that are heavily linked to this government. Uh, he will follow their, their interests so far. Hmm. Because if the problem is that the economy is not taking up. Unemployment is, by Brazil standards, still very high. There are no investments. Now, if this continues like this... Uh, there will be uh, there will be a lot of troubles for the government, and they will split. Then I'm sure that the liberals will take distance from Bolsonaro, and say to the public, "Listen, it isn't our 
solutions, our re liberal receipt, is not working because of Bolsonaro. So let's have then democratic policies again eh, and try it out. Mm. And Bolsonaro himself, he will become much more aggressive. And that's the sen two scenarios that I foresee for the coming year up to the municipal elections in October next year, which will have a clearly plebiscitarian uh, 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 significance. Mm. Yeah. A sort of vote of confidence in the government. Yeah, right. Although it's municipal, yeah. uh, it's, it will clearly be a vote of confidence or not in the government. Mm. And if the economy is bad, then there will be a huge uh, uh, fight between these liberals. Now, what's the difference between the liberals, which I call ultra-liberals, which are now in the government together with Bolsonaro, and the neoliberals. Well, that's exactly the neoliberals of the 90s. They were democratic. They respected the, the, the Constitution, the institutions, uh, and uh, the ultra-liberals, they are willing to give up uh, democracy uh, in the sake of their economic interests. That's the difference. And that's mm. a huge difference. Sure. I want to just touch a little bit on the future of work or the future nature of work. We sp you spoke about the uberization, the uberization of the of our econ of our global economy, and I'm just uh, sort of wondering what the impact of that, the follow-on impact, then is on on the left. If we in in that in in the in the employment sector, the more specifically a, a trade union movement, then as a force for change, if the whole nature of work is being, I suppose, dismantled in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, well, that is a major challenge, which is, of course, you know, this is a challenge for democracy as a whole, for, society, for all societies in the world. It's going very fast. Um, I'm being invited every week almost by trade unions <laughs> to talk about it, and there's, in fact... It's a horror story, but but um, we should not underestimate it. Uh, we are talking about enormous impact on the work. It's already happening, in fact. It will destroy millions and millions of jobs without no perspective of creating other jobs. Yeah. It will also mean an enormous increase in international competitivity against between monopolies and between countries it's when we talk about the technological war called the trade war between china and the us it's in fact about who will lead the fourth industrial revolution and then germany itself is also stepping in and so if you want to have a clear idea look at what davos is saying about it davos the economic forum when they, well, I know that they are now together here in South Africa for yeah. regional meaning, I suppose. But if they are there in Switzerland, and then you will see you know, books coming out, papers that are presented in Davos. The elite is very worried. Why are they worried? Because they see the perspective of a society which is uncontrollable. If you have millions and millions of unemployed people, how are you going to control the, the, and the people who are employed, they won't have unions anymore. The unions, as we know, uh, of course, there will be new kinds of organizations. Mm. Uh, oppressed people always will find ways to organize. Community-based. Every, as far as we know, history, uh, there are ways for people to organize. Uh, we, we don't know yet how this will work out. Uh, 
But look about Ubers. I don't know here, but in Brazil, there are already hundreds of thousands of people uh, running around with, um, with, with bikes, with scooters, with motors, with cars. Um, they are extremely exploited. Eh? Uh, they have to give 30% to, to a company, which is even in foreign companies uh, moving the, the money out of the country. But And, and, and they work hours and hours and to, to get... so. But it is a solution for them. Mm. <laughs> uh, but what I want to say is that the difficulty is to organize. Eh? So w the, the world will change enormously. Uh, and, and the elites are very occupied with, yeah, very preoccupied uh, with what, what, how this will work out. Because with a union, you can still have uh, negotiations, even with radical unions. Now, if you don't have ways to, to give voice in an organized way yeah, to, to workers, there can be informal uh, eruptions, uh, which can take many different forms, uh, violent, uh, violence against maybe the wrong targets, migrants, etc. So it's not only a challenge of the left and the unions, it's a challenge for democracy. Yeah. Uh, I think it's interesting to look at Germany where, where the, the idea of um, Industry 4.0 is the name of the program of the government to, to respond to the challenge of China and the United States. And you will find there that uh, on the board of this program, there are the unions mm. also, the workers, so the, the, yeah. to, to try to think together. Mm. Yeah. So, of course, the educational system and... Scandinavian model as well, isn't it? To yeah. have that sort of trade union representative on the board. Yeah, of yeah, yeah. But, but Scandinavia is, of course, very small economy. Mm, sure, sure. And, and yeah. they are not really... Uh, but, mm. but, uh, but yes, some way to... to um, it's different ways to democratize mm. and so I, I think it's a huge challenge mm. there's no doubt about that and there's no way back uh, mm. uh, but uh, it's like the environment uh, uh, it's a, a problem that we have to tackle mm. uh, because mm. you can't live in a world because it means if, if we don't act uh, through public institutions, through the state or internationally, the fourth revolution will provoke enormous concentration of wealth and income eh? and an enormous, uh, uh, you know, all over the world, not only in, 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 in developing countries and underdeveloped countries, also in the, in the center countries, enormous amount of people without jobs and without income. And so the, the, the challenge is to, to see ways. That's what Davos is thinking, but that's not necessarily... But we have to think but the way of how you can delink income and jobs. Universal basic income. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we have to be careful what it exactly means because the, the, the participating in society is linked to labor. Yeah? So not necessarily this is the best solution. Mm. We might have other ways of dividing the jobs that are there or whatever. But it needs, of course, enormous, enormous investments in skilling new skillings uh, and uh, well capital and, and the state has to understand that these investments in, in skilling and integrating people in this process is absolutely necessary otherwise it's like deforestation yeah? hmm. and, and we need the forest we need the people hmm. so Prof I know you have to go so yeah, uh, I would like to thank you very much for your time this afternoon. It's been fascinating. I could have spoken for hours. Yeah, okay. Well, come back and we speak <laughs> later. <laughs> cool. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much.
hope you enjoyed that. found it quite refreshing to get a new perspective on certain global events and also just to think a bit more about where South Africa might fit into the global economic and political battles of the future, uh, where China in particular and the USA uh, loom large. I'm also becoming more and more interested, sparked in some sense uh, by this discussion with Professor Schutter on the role of the financial sector as a particular component of global capitalism that is a hindrance to significant socio-economic change, particularly in developmental states, emerging democracies, and how fickle that sector can be. And it's something I hope to tackle in future episodes. Voices from SA is hosted on Audio Boom. You may subscribe to Voices from SA via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio Public, Deezer, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tell your colleagues, tell your friends, tell the world. Until next time, I'm Nicholas Claude. Cheers. <laughs>